Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. Lemony Snicket, Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Oh, you just pulled the blankets off of me. My legs are cold. Book the 10th, The Slippery Slope. Chapter 9. The two elder Baudelaire stood for a moment with Quigley gazing up at the small plane, a word here which means a mysterious cloud of green smoke. After the long, strange story that he had told them about surviving the fire, that he learned... That he learned about VFD, they could scarcely believe that they were confronting another mystery. It's a verdant, flammable device, Quigley said. There's someone at the top of the water, at the top of the waterfall, sending a signal. Yes, Violet said, but who? Maybe it's a volunteer who escaped the fire, Klaus said. Now they're signaling signaling to see if there's any other volunteers nearby. Or it could be a trap, Quigley said. There could be... They could be luring volunteers up to the peak to, or to ambush them. Remember, the codes of VFD are used by both sides of the schism. It's so weird. This looks so weird. The this, this schism? Both sides of the schism, Pain. What's wrong with that? What does that mean? One side of the schism. What's a, what's a schism? Schism is like, um, how am I supposed to explain what a schism is? <laughs> all right it's okay it hardly seems like a code violet said but we know that someone's communicating and we don't have the faintest idea of who they are or what they're saying well this is what it must be like klaus said thoughtfully when sunny talks to people that don't know her very well uh, at the mention of sunny's name the baudelaire's were reminded of how much they missed her whether it's a volunteer or a trap violet said it might be our only chance to find her sister or my brother and sister, Quigley said. Let's signal back, Klaus said. Do you have one of those vert and flammable devices, Quigley? Of course, Quigley said, taking the box out of the green tubes of his backpack. The Bruce, oh, but Bruce saw, saw my matches and confiscated them because children shouldn't play with matches. Confiscated them, <clears throat> Klaus said. Do you think he's an enemy of VFD? Everyone who said children shouldn't play with matches was an enemy of VFD, Violet said with a smile. Then we wouldn't have, oh, if everyone was, if everyone who said that children shouldn't play with matches was an enemy of VFD, Violet said with a smile, then we wouldn't have much of a chance of survival. But how are we going to light these matches, Quigley said, without matches, Quigley said. Violet read, reached in her pocket. It was a bit, it was a bit tricky to tie your hair up with a ribbon as all four drafts of the Valley of Ford were blowing hard, but at last her hair was out of her eyes and the gears and the levers of her inventing mind began to move as she quickly gazed up at the mysterious signal. But, of course, this signal was neither a volunteer nor a trap. It was a baby with unusually large teeth and with unusually large teeth in a way of talking that some people found confusing. When Sunny Baudelaire had said locks, for example, the members of Count Olaf's troop assumed that she was babbling, simply babbling, rather than explaining how she was going to cook the salmon that the hook, 
Okay, man caught. Lox is a word which refers to smoked salmon, and it's delicious. It's a delicious way to enjoy freshly caught fish, particularly one that has approximate has the approximate accoutrements, a phrase here which means bagel, cream cheese, sliced cucumber, black pepper, and capers, which can be eaten along with the lox for an enjoyable meal. That's actually true. That is my favorite breakfast. And anytime, mm. anytime we go to Goofy's Kitchen, that's the first thing I get for breakfast. Lox has been, except I like pile that lox on. I get like half a bagel, and then I get like three times the amount of lox that I just go to town. Lox has an additional benefit of introducing quite a bit of smoke and has prepared it in the season Sunny chose this method of preparing salmon, as opposed to gravlax, which is salmon marinated for several days in a mixture of spices, sashimi, which or sashimi, which is salmon cut into pleasing shapes and simply served raw. Remembering what Count Olaf had said about being able to see everything and everyone from the peak where they had where he had brought her, the youngest Baudelaire realized the phrase "where there's smoke, there's fire" might be able to help her. As Violet and Klaus heard Quigley's extraordinary tale at the bottom of the frozen waterfall, Sunny hurried to prepare locks and send signals to her siblings, who she hoped were nearby. First, she nudged the verdant, verdant flammable device, which she, like everybody at the peak, believed was a cigarette, and a small patch of weeds in order to increase the smoke. When she dragged over the covered casserole dish that she had been using to make a makeshift bed, and placed the salmon inside of it in no time at all. The fish caught by the hook-handed man were absorbing the heat and smoke from the simmering green tube, and a large plume of smoke was floating up into the sky above, Mount Fraught. Sunny Sunny gazed up at the signal she made and couldn't help but smiling. The last time she'd been separated from her siblings, she'd simply waited by the birdcage for them to come and rescue her, but she had since grown and was able to take an active part in defending Count Olaf's, in defeating Count Olaf and his troop, trout, tr- wait, trope. Oh my gosh, why do I have a hard time with that word? It's trope. And his trope, while still having time to prepare a seafood dish. Something smells delicious, one of the white-faced women said, walking by the casserole dish. I must admit, I had some doubts that an infant would be able to would, should be in charge of a cooking, but your salmon recipe seems like it would be very tasty indeed. There's a word here for the way she's preparing the fish, the hook-handed man said, but I can't remember what it is. Lox, Sunny said, but no one overheard her in the tent. Over, No one heard her over the sound of Count Olaf storming out of his tent, followed by Esme and two sinister visitors. Olaf was clutching the snicket vial and glaring down at Sunny with his shiny, shiny eyes. Put that smoke out at once, he ordered. I thought you were a terrified orphan prisoner, but now I'm beginning to think you're a spy. What do you mean, Olaf? asked the other white-faced woman. She's using Esme's cigarette to cook some fish. Someone might see smoke, Esme snarled, as if she had not been smoking her cigarette just moments ago. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And the man with the white beard had no hair that had no hair picked up a handful of snow and threw it on the weeds, extinguishing the verdant flammable device. Who are you signaling to, baby? he asked. If you're a spy, we're going to toss you off this mountain. Goo goo, Sunny said, which meant something along the lines of, I'm going to pretend I'm a helpless baby instead of answering your question. You see, the white-faced woman said, looking a bit nervously at the man with a beard but no hair. She's just a helpless baby. 
Perhaps you're right, said the woman with hair but no beard. Besides, there's no reason to throw a baby off a mountain unless you absolutely have to. Babies come in handy, Count Olaf. In fact, I've been thinking about recruiting more young people into my trope. They're less likely to complain about doing my bidding. But we never complain, the hook-handed man said. I try to be as accommodating as possible. Enough chit-chat, the man said with no beard and with a beard and no hair. We have a lot of scheming to do, Olaf. I have some information that might help you with your recruiting uh, with your recruiting idea, and according to the Snicket file, there's one more safe place for the volunteers to gather. The last safe place, said the sinister man. We have to find it and burn it down. And once we do, Count Olaf said, the last of the evidence of our plan will be completely destroyed. We'll never have to worry about the authorities again. Where is the safe place? asked Kevin. <sighs> Olaf opened his mouth to answer, but the woman with hair but no beard stopped him with a quick gesture and a suspicious glance down at Sunny. Not in front of the toothy orphan, she said in her deep, deep voice. If she learned what we were up to, she'd never sleep again. And you need your infant servant full of energy. Send her away and we'll make our plans. Of course, said Olaf, smiling nervously at the sinister visitor. Orphans, orphan, go to my car and remove all the potato chip crumbs from the interior by blowing as hard as you can. <laughs> oh my God. Feudal, Sunny said, which meant something like, that is absolutely impossible chore. But she walked in unsteadily toward the car of Olaf's trope, laughing and gathered around the flat rock to hear the new scheme. Passing the extinguished fire the covered in the covered casserole dish where she thought where she would be sleeping that night, Sunny sighed sadly, thinking that her signal plan must have failed, but when she reached Olaf's car, she gazed down the frozen waterfall and saw something that lightened her spirits. A phrase here which means an identical plume of green smoke coming from the very bottom of the slope. She's like, my siblings. The youngest Baudelaire looked at the smoke and smiled. Siblings, she said to herself. Of course, she knew was that it was certainly Violet and Klaus who were signaling to her, but she could hope it was so. Oh, she didn't know it was, but she could hope it was so. And, and it was enough hope to cheer her up as she opened the door of the car and began blowing the crumbs of Olaf and his troop had scattered all over the upholstery. But at the bottom of the frozen waterfall, the two elder Baudelaire's did not feel nearly as beautiful as they stood with Quigley and watched the green smoke disappear to the highest peak. Someone put out the someone put out that verdant flammable device, Quigley said, holding to the green tube to one side so he wouldn't smell the smoke. What do you think that means? I don't know, Violet said and sighed. This isn't working. Of course it's working, Klaus said. It's working perfectly. You notice the afternoon sun was reflecting the frozen waterfall, and it gave you the idea to use the scientific principles of the convergence and the refraction of light just like when you did on Lake Lacrimos when we were battling the leeches. So you use Colette's hand mirror to, so you use Colette's hand mirror to catch the sun rays and reflect them into the end of the verdant flammable device so we could light it and send a signal. Klaus is right, quickly said. It couldn't have worked better. Thank you, said Violet. But that's not what I mean. I mean the code isn't working. We still don't know who's up on the peak or why they're signaling to us, and now the signal has stopped. But we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe we should extinguish our verdant flammable device too, Klaus said. Maybe, Violet agreed. Or maybe we should go to the top of the waterfall and see for ourselves who is there. Quigley frowned and took out his commonplace book. The only way 
Up this highest peak, he said, is the path that is the path that snow scouts are taking. We'd have to go back through the vernacularly fastened door, back down the vertical flame diversion, back into the volunteer feline detective cave, and rejoin the scouts and hike for a long time. That's not the only way up the peak, Violet said with a smile. Yes, it is, Quigley insisted. Look at the map. Look at the waterfall, Violet repeated, and the three children looked at the shiny slope. Do you mean, Klaus said, that you think you can invent something which can get us up the frozen waterfall? But Violet was already tying her hair up, away from her eyes again, looking around at the ruins of VFD headquarters. I'll need that ukulele that you took from the caravan, she said to Klaus, and that half-melted candelabra over there on the dining room table. Klaus looked at the u- took the ukulele from his coat pocket and handed it to his sister and then walked over to the table to retrieve a strange melted object. Unless you need further assistance, he said, I think I might examine the wreckage in the library to see if any documents have survived. We might be able to learn as much as from this headquarters as we can. Good idea, Quigley said, and he reached into his backpack as he reached into his backpack, he brought out a notebook much like his own, except he had it had a dark blue cover. I have a spare notebook, he said. You might be interested in starting a commonplace book of your own. That is very kind of you, Klaus said. I'll write anything down that I find. Do you want to join the search? I think I'll stay here, Quigley said, looking at Violet. I've heard quite a bit f- about Violet Baudelaire's marvelous inventions, and I'd love to see her work. Klaus nodded from the iron archway that marked the entrance of the ruined library while Violet blushed and leaned down to pick up one of the forks that had survived the fire. This is one of the greatest, this is one of the greatest, oh, great sadnesses of the Baudelaire case that Violet never got to meet a man named C.M. Cornbluth, an associate of mine who spent most of his life living and working in the Valley of Drafts as a mechanical instructor at VFD headquarters. Is it giraffes? What? Is the Valley of Giraffes? The Valley of Four Giraffes. I could say giraffes if it makes you happy, though. Mr. Cornbluth was a quiet and secretive man, so secretive that no one ever knew who he was, where he came from, or even who the C, what the C or the M stood for, and he had spent much time, much of his time holed up in this dormitory room writing strange stories or gazing sadly out the window of the kitchen. The good thing that Mr. Cornbluth was in a good mood would, would be a particularly promising mechanical student if a young man showed interest showed interest in a deep sea radar mr cornbluth would take off his glasses and smile if a young woman brought him a staple gun she had built mr cornbluth would clap his hands in excitement and if a pair of twins asked him how to properly rewrote the copper wiring he would take a paper bag out of his pocket and offer some pistachio nuts to anybody who helped him around so when I think of Violet Baudelaire standing at the wreckage of VFD headquarters, carefully taking the strings of the ukulele and bending some of the forks in half, I can imagine and Mr. Cornbluth, I can imagine Mr. Cornbluth, even though he said his pistachios are long gone, turning to the window and smiling at the Baudelaire inventor, saying, Beatrice, come over here. Look at what this girl's making. What are you making, Quigley said. Something that will get us up that waterfall, Violet said. I only wish that Sunny was here. Her teeth would be perfect to slice these ukulele strings in half. I might have something that could help, Quigley said, looking through his backpack. When I was in Dr. Orwell's office, I found these fake fingernails. They're a horrible shade of pink, but they're quite sharp. 
Violet looked at the fingernails, ew, gross, from Quigley and took it, took, looked at it very carefully. I think Count Olaf was wearing these, she said, as part of his receptionist disguise. It's so strange that you've been following our footsteps this whole time, yet we've never even known you were alive. I knew you were alive, Quigley said. Jacques Snicket told me about you, Klaus, and Sonny, even your parents. He knew that quite well before you were born. Oh, he knew them quite well before you were born. I thought so, Violet said, cutting the ukulele strings. In the photograph we found, my parents were standing with Jacques Snicket and another man. He's probably Jacques' brother, Quigley said. Jacques told me that he was looking very close. He was working very closely with his two siblings on an important file. The Snicket file, Violet said. We were hoping to find it here. Quigley looked up at the frozen waterfall. Maybe whoever signaled us will know where it is. Well, we'll find out soon enough, Violet said. Please take off your shoes. My shoes, Quigley asked. The waterfall's going to be very slippy, Violet. Slippery, Violet explained. So I'm going to use the ukulele strings to make these, to make, to tie these <laughs> forks to the toe area to make a fork-assisted climbing shoe. We had two more forks in our hands. We will hold two more forks in our hands. Tines of the fork, whoa, tines, I don't know what that means. Tines of the fork are almost as, sh oh, the teeth, as sharp as Sunny's teeth. So the fork-assisted climbing shoes will easily dig into the ice with each step and enable us to keep our balance. But what's the candelabra for, Quigley said, unlacing his shoes. I'm using it to create an ice tester. Violet said, a moving body of water such as waterfalls rarely completely frozen, so there are probably places of the slope where it's only a thin layer of ice, particularly with false spring on its way. If we stick the fork through the ice and hit water, we'll lose our grip and fall. So I'll tap the ice with the candelabra before each step and I'll find a solid place where we can climb. Oh, it sounds like a difficult journey, Quigley said. No more difficult than climbing up the vertical flame diversion, Violet said, tying a fork to Quigley's shoe. I'm using the sumac knot it should hold tight this now all we need is is klaus's shoelace and i'm sorry to interrupt but i think that this might be important klaus said and violet turned to see what her that her brother had returned he was holding the dark blue notebook in one hand and a small burnt piece of paper in the other i found this scrap of paper in the pile of ashes he said it's from some kind of a code book what does it say violet asked in the e something Filigration resulting in destruction of a sink something. The blinkters should avail themselves of the verbal something dialogue, which is concealed accordingly. Okay, so part of it was ruined, so we can't read the whole message. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, Quigley said. Do you think it's a code? Sort of, Klaus said. Parts of the sentence are burned away, so you have to figure out the sentence. Figure out the sentence as if it's coded. Flagration is probably the last part of the word conflagration and a fancy word for fire is sink so it's probably beginning of the word sanctuary which means a safe place so the sentence probably begins something like in the event of a conflagration resulting in destruction of the fire of a sanctuary violet stood up and looked over his shoulder tears she said it's probably volunteers but we didn't know what avail themselves means it means to make of use klaus said like you're availing yourself of the ukulele in these forks don't you see this says that a safe place a safe place burns down they'll leave some sort of a message a verbal free something dialogue but what could verbal free something dialogue 
be? Quigley asked. Friends? Frisky? Frilly? Frightening? But it says that it's concealed accordingly, Klaus pointed out. That means the dialogue is hidden in a, di- in a logical way. If it were verbal waterfall dialogue, it would be hidden in the waterfall. So none of those words could be right. Where where would someone leave a message where, we couldn't, where a fire couldn't destroy it? But a fire destroys everything, Violet said, looking at the headquarters. Nothing is left except the library entrance and the refrigerator Klaus finished. Oh my gosh, we might have, it may have said the fridge, verbal fridge dialogue, Quigley said. The volunteers left a message, Klaus said, who was ready already halfway to the refrigerator in the place they knew wouldn't be affected by the fire. And one of the place of their enemies wouldn't think of looking, Quigley said. After all, there's never anything terribly important in a refrigerator. What Quigley said, of course, was not entirely true. Like an envelope of hollow fig- like an envelope, a hollow figurine, and a coffin, a refrigerator can hold many sorts of things, and they may return out they may turn out to be very important depending on what kind of day you're having. A refrigerator may hold an ice pack, for example, which may be important if you've had if you've been wounded. A refrigerator may hold a bottle of water, which could be important if you're dying of thirst. And a refrigerator may hold a basket of strawberries, which would be important of which would be important if a maniac was to say to you, if you don't give me a basket of strawberries right now, I'm going to poke you with this large stick. But when the two bold, older Baudelaire's and Quigley Quagmire opened the refrigerator, they found nothing that would help them with somebody who was wounding, dying of thor- thirst, or being threatened by a strawberry-crazed stick-carrying maniac or anything that looked important at all. The fridge was almost empty, with just a few usual things that people keep in their refrigerator and rarely use, including a jar of mustard, a container of olives, three jars of different kinds of jam, a bottle of lemon juice, and one lonely pickle in a small glass jug. There's nothing here, Violet said, looking in the crisper. Quigley, look in the crisper, Quigley said, pointing to the drawer of the refrigerator traditionally used for storing fruits and vegetables. Klaus opened the drawer and pulled out a few strands of green plant with tiny skinny leaves. Smells like dill, Klaus said, and it's quite crisp as if it were picked yesterday. Very fresh dill, Quigley said. Another mystery. Violet said, and tears filled her eyes. We have nothing but mysteries. We don't know where Sunny is. We don't know where Count Olaf is. We don't know who's signaling us at the top of the waterfall or what they're trying to say. And there's now there's a mystery message and a code of a mysterious refrigerator and a bunch of mysterious herbs and a crisper. I'm tired of mysteries. I want someone to help us. We can we can help each other, Klaus said. We have your invention and Quigley's map and my research. Well, we're very well, and we're all very well read, Quigley said. That should be enough to solve any mystery. Violet sighed and kicked at something that lay on the ground. It was a small shell of a pistachio nut blackened from the fire and destroyed in the headquarters. Just like we're members of VFD already, she said, we're sending signals and breaking codes and finding secrets in the ruins of a fire. Do you think your parents would be proud of us, Klaus said, following their footsteps? I don't know, Violet said. After all, they kept VFD a secret. Maybe they're Maybe they were going to tell us later, Klaus said. Or maybe they hoped we'd never find out, Violet said. I keep wondering the same thing, Quigley said. If I could travel back in time to the moment my mother showed me the secret passageway to the library, I would ask her why she was keeping it a secret. That's one more mystery, Violet. Violet said sadly and looked up at the slippery slope. It was getting late in the afternoon and the frozen waterfall looked less and less shiny. 
and the fading sunlight, and they were running out of, running out to climb to the top and see who had been signaling them. We should each investigate the mystery we're most likely to solve, she said. I'll climb up the waterfall and solve the mystery of the verdant flammable device by leading, learning who's up there and what they want. You could stay down here, Klaus, and solve the mystery of verbal fridge dialogue by learning the code and discovering the message. And I'll help you both, Quigley said, pulling out his purple notebook. I'll leave my commonplace book with Klaus in case any he needs any help with codes, and I'll climb the waterfall with you, Violet, in case you need my help. Are you sure? she asked. You've already taken this us this far, Quigley. You don't have to risk your life any further. What, what is he going to do? Leave? They're part of a team now. He wants to find his siblings. She wants to find their parents and, and Sunny. Right? She just wants to have her parents right now. Yeah. I mean, her sister. Mm-hmm. We'll understand. We'll understand, Klaus said, if you want to leave and search for your siblings. Don't be absurd, Quigley said. We're all part of this mystery, whatever it is. Of course I'm going to help you. The two Baudelaire's looked at one another and smiled. It's so rare in this world to meet a trustworthy person who truly wants to help you and find such a person can make you feel warm and safe, even if you're in the middle of a windy valley high up in the mountains for a moment as their friend smiled back at them. It seemed as if all of the mysteries had been solved already, even with Sunny still separated from them and Count Olaf still at large and the abandoned VFD headquarters still in ashes around them. Just knowing that they had found a person like Quigley... Quigley Quagmire made Violet and Klaus feel very, feel as if every code made sense and every signal was clear. Violet stepped forward with her fork-assisted climbing shoes and made a small, determined noise on the ground and took Quigley's hand. Thank you, she said, for volunteering. Oh, that's just adorable. Adorable, adorable. <laughs>